Okay, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this time to open up the scriptures and to read them together. And we thank you for uh, breathing forth these words uh, to your church and revealing yourself in a saving way to your people. And we bless your name for uh, the brave people that went before us who uh, copied and preserved uh, your word in scripture and translated it into our language. And we pray that uh, our Bibles would uh, always be read every day and that we would um, walk in what you have revealed to us, and that we would believe the truth, and that our confidence for entering heaven would always be uh, solely and only upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his personal righteousness, uh, his obedience to you, and not our own, and his cross as the full satisfaction for uh, the justice, the holy justice due to us for our sins. And uh, we pray that we would always rest upon uh, him and his work alone. Um, and be thankful uh, to you for the fruit that we see in our lives, uh, but never to trust in them. And we pray you'd help help us to understand this great book of Galatians and to uh, treasure what it says in our hearts and to uh, have it as a a bulwark in our minds and and a shield uh, to our hearts against the false teachings of our time. And we pray that we would stand firmly uh, rooted in the true gospel, the only gospel as we saw last week. Uh, that is able to save. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're on Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. And uh, last time we kind of went over some of the unique features of the book of Galatians, that it's a a letter that Paul wrote, uh, not to a single church, but a whole area, to the churches of Galatia. He wrote letters to individuals and to individual churches. Uh, but this is to the churches of Galatia. So Galatia is not a, a, a city. Galatia is a region. It was a region of Asia Minor. And uh, Paul had been there and had preached to them, had planted those churches there. But then he heard something uh, about what was going on there. What, what did he hear that they were now teaching? <coughs> Go ahead. I can see it in your eyes, man. <laughs> well, that they, they don't believe the gospel that was directed to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was a departure from the original gospel that he preached to them. It was a departure by addition to it. And so always remember that it's such an important point that Paul, when he wrote this, he's being guided by the Holy Spirit to write this. He does not emphasize what he had in common with those teachers. Did he have theology in common with them? Yeah, he did. They, they did. I mean, they, they all believed in the, in the true God. They believed in the deity of Christ. I'm sure they all believed in the resurrection of Christ. They believed that you needed to repent. They believed that you needed to trust in Christ to be saved. They just said, trusting in Christ to be saved is not enough. You also have to do this. And what's Paul's reaction to that? You foolish glit. He goes off. He goes off in this book. Um, I've read a number of commentaries on Galatians. Remember, Leon, I think it's Leon Morris's commentary. He says, going through this book in Greek, it's almost like the guy that wrote it is so mad that he doesn't even care. In fact, the expression he uses, he doesn't even care about the niceties of grammar. He's just ripping into them, and he's angry at them because they have departed from what he told them. Okay, so... My point in sharing that with you is we should have that very same kind of visceral reaction when we hear the gospel denied. Okay, But we live, we live in a time where there's a, a false form of humility that people have today that says you can't really be that certain about what the truth is. And if you really think you know what the truth is to the point that you're going to identify things as being wrong, then you're just arrogant and full of yourself and pompous and, and everything else. But is it arrogant, pompous, and full of yourself to believe what Scripture says? No. Okay? And to know that what it says is clear enough for us to be able to say, therefore, that's wrong. And so is that. And that's wrong, too. But you live in a a church culture today in a time when that's just not popular uh, to do that. But we want to follow the lead of the apostles of Christ and of Scripture. We need to have the same mentality that they had. All right, look at verse uh, 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, he says. 
For, verse 12, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now remember, what does he say in the very first verse of the whole book? Remember how he, how he describes himself? It's, kinda, it's, a, it's a somewhat unusual way of him identifying himself in his letters. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Why is he emphasizing that so much? Yeah, this verse here. And he's trying to emphasize to them, what I preach to you, I directly got from the Lord Jesus. And if, he's going to emphasize here towards the end of chapter 1, I had never even met Peter. I had never even talked to any of the other apostles. I ran into Jesus on the road to Damascus. That's where I got my gospel. I delivered to you what he taught me. Okay, so this is pure gospel gold. There's no, he was not taught this by any human being of this world. It was the Lord Jesus, the God-man, taught this to him. Okay, see that verse 12? You see it? I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Also, what do you think, the end of verse 11 there, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Why do you think he put that there? I'm sorry? It's not a mention of, of humanity. It's not something man would invent, is it? It makes us look really bad. It does. It makes us look really bad. What does the gospel say to us, to the whole world? That's right. You're a sinner. You need a savior. And in fact, you're so simple, you can't do anything at all. You can't contribute anything to this. And at the end of this book, he says, if I preached circumcision, if I said you need to believe in Jesus, and you need to, to trust in him, and added one little thing to that, then he, he says, then the offense of the cross has ceased. Why is the cross offensive to people? Can't save yourself? Can't save yourself? Not even partially? I mean, Jesus is, uh, this is one thing I used to argue, you know, I used to debate with Roman Catholics, because I, I lived in Roman Catholic Mecca in Cincinnati, everybody there is German Roman Catholic, and talking to them again and again, and the way that they describe Jesus, oh yes, we... We need his, his grace, and we need his assistance, and we need his help. And I said, he sounds more like a cheerleader than a savior to me. Because really what he's doing is helping you pull it off. Like you're saying, you couldn't do it without him. And what I'm saying is, he does it all for you. Because you can't contribute anything to this. At all. Okay, and that's why Paul says the cross is an offense to the world. Because when we preach Christ and him crucified, we're telling people the only way that you can be right with God, you have to abandon all hope and trust in yourself, in your works, in anything you do, and trust solely, completely, and only in the finished work of Christ. And if, you ever, if you're really wanting to know why am I so like hardcore about that, it's because of this book. It's because of Galatians. Because Paul, Paul is so narrow about the gospel. And again and again, I think, I think a lot of professing Christians do not realize how narrow the gospel it really is. Like, you need to be relying on the finished work of Christ. Whether you can articulate all the details perfectly right or not, your confidence for going to heaven has got to be resting on him and nothing you do. Okay? That is vital. As we're going to see at the end of Galatians, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but Galatians 5 uh, the, the opening verses of it, I think, are, is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. It really is, because he, he says, I solemnly testify to you. If you get circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. What's he saying? The moment you start trusting in anything alongside of or in addition to him, what does that mean? You're not a Christian. Not a Christian. <laughs> yeah. Because by doing that, you clearly don't understand what he did. If you're relying on anything done in you or by you or outside, outside of what Christ has done, you clearly just don't understand Christianity then. That, that's really what he's saying. You, be, you are severed from grace, fallen from grace. You're a debtor to keep the whole law, and Christ will be of no benefit to you. So that's, that's how narrow, narrow this is. <laughs> Jesus said that strive to enter the narrow gate. It's, it's that narrow. It's you either trust in the Lord Jesus, or you're lost. Okay, and we'll look at some other passages, bring in a bunch of other passages to mind. Look at verse 13 there. 
For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition, for the traditions of my fathers. Okay, so the Galatians knew about his backstory, right? They knew who he was. In fact, he, Paul was very well known in Christian circles uh, before he got saved. And why is that? Why did everybody know who he was? That's right. That's right. Who was it? Who was I talking to that said that someone told me that um, they had listened to something about Galatians? I had never heard this before. That Damascus was a place where a lot of Christians had been scattered because of all the persecution. It was a real far flung place that was away. But Paul was so hateful towards Christians, he was going to go even that far out of the way to go find them. He was on his way there. Who, who was that? Someone here that told me that? Someone else? Okay. Very good. Okay. Anyway, but I thought I'd, I'd never heard, I'd never read that or heard that before. But that, that does make sense because Damascus is pretty far away from Jerusalem. That the Christians were being scattered by all that persecution from Jews. But Paul wasn't okay with that. He was going to go find them even all the way out there. Okay, so they knew all about his backstory and how zealous he was as a Pharisee and all of that. All right, verse fifteen. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb. And called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Now, just breaking from the verse here for a minute. Look at verse 15 and 16 again. Just look at it. When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. What do you think Paul understands about why he became a Christian? God, God saved him. What, what was that? That's right. He did. Okay, there's nothing here. I was on my way to a Bible study. I had all these questions. And, I mean, it was... Down the corridors of time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah God, God looked down the corridors of time and saw how interested I was in being a Christian. No, he, I mean, the way that's recorded in um, Acts chapter 9, it's one of the most amazing passages. In fact, let's turn to it because we're just kind of free-flowing here. Look at Acts chapter 9 real quick. This is another, <clears throat> another key passage long ago that really impacted my understanding of free will. and Are, are we the ones that convert ourselves or not? Look at the opening verses of Acts chapter 9 there. And um, someone read um, verses 1 and 2. Anyone? Not all at once. Okay. Okay. And you, you know the rest of the story. Look at verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't that wonderful? Jesus identifies directly with his people. So to persecute the church is to persecute him. And um, verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? <laughs> That's right, yeah. Corios, yeah, who, who are you? <laughs> And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Anyone here ever listened to Martin Lloyd-Jones preach before? Mm-hmm. He, there's a sermon he did on, on this passage. And it, it's, it's one of the best sermons I've ever heard. But he, he talks about this as like, this is one of the great turning points in all of history. This, this guy who is so filled with hatred uh, and is so opposed to God and to the gospel... He's knocked down. He, he is not sure who this is. And he asks, who are you? And the way Lloyd-Jones preached it, I am Jesus. <laughs> and he, he describes it as one of the most self-shattering moments in the life of any human being that's ever lived. It's like everything this guy thought he knew about God and religion was pretty much wrong. And it was just, it was a moment of utter humiliation. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. 
And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So, um, in fact, when um, when Paul tells the story later, I think it's in Acts 22 when he's, he's describing this, uh, Anna, Jesus says to Ananias, remember what he says to him? I want you to go and um, go see Saul and, uh, I'm sorry? Yeah, I said, I'm not, he's like, don't you know who that is? Um, I love G- Jesus says, for behold, he is praying. <laughs> I would love to know. For three days, you can't see. He doesn't eat or drink anything, and he's just sitting there. I would love to know what he's praying about. Like, I mean, wouldn't you love a window into his mind? Okay, so there's his his background. So look at go back to Galatians one now. Galatians one verse uh, fifteen and sixteen. Let's just read it again. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And so here again, what's he emphasizing to them? He did not meet with the other apostles. Okay, so once again, what he's really emphasizing is the divine background to the message he preached. He wants them to know, I didn't talk to any other apostles Jesus is the one who saved me, separated me from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, and uh, I didn't confer with flesh and blood. I didn't meet with anyone to, to learn the faith. Well, he's saying to them, I learned it directly from the Lord Jesus himself. Okay, I was not taught it. It came through a revelation of, of Jesus Christ directly to me. Was, was he in Arabia for three years? That's what, yeah, I think so, yeah. Is there any speculation on why he went to Arabia? I think that he just wanted to go preach there. Yeah, he immediately went out and started preaching the gospel, which is really, I mean, it really is remarkable because he's, he wasn't with the original disciples during all of Jesus' earthly ministry, and suddenly he's, he's out there preaching. You, you would think that this, the other apostles might challenge his apostleship, but they never do. Like, they understood that Jesus had appeared to him and had appointed him, um, and it was, it was unusual because he wasn't with the original group, but... It's almost like the, they needed, like the uh, original band needed a, a scholar, because those other guys weren't. <laughs> they were. I mean, even their enemies were like, these guys are uneducated Galilean fishermen. Like, this is pretty bizarre. But here you have Paul. Paul is an intellectual giant of a man. He really is. Um, if I, anyone here ever read uh, Frank Morrison's book, Who Moved the Stone? British attorney tried to disprove the resurrection, ends up becoming a Christian. He has a whole chapter about Paul. And, and describes him as one of the most brilliant human beings he's ever heard of. He said, if, when you read this guy's letter, letters, this guy's a giant. If you, don't, if you stop paying attention to him for three seconds while you're reading, he'll lose you. Like, you've got to listen and pay attention to this guy. Because he, he was one of the best educated people in the world of his day. He really was. So, but you're right. He would have known the Hebrew. He, he knew um, the Old Testament scriptures, you know, backwards and forwards, you know, really well. Yeah, yeah. Once he learned, once he learned how to read scripture in a in a Christ centered way, it must have just been like the whole the lights all came on. You know, he knew that Old Testament text so well. But sitting there after being saved, it must have been like he probably was doing what a lot of us do. How did I not see this before? Okay. Anyone here do that with predestination and election? Yes. Yeah. I've told you the story. I told my mother I was a Calvinist, and she cried and cried and cried on the phone. I'm like, like you, did you join a cult or something? I'm like, mom, please. And I gave her "Willing to Believe" by R.C. Sproul and "The Bondage of the Will" by Martin Luther, and she read them. And she reread the New Testament, and she's like, "How did I miss the doctrine of election? It's on every page of the Bible, especially John's Gospel." And I was like, "Yeah, it sure is, isn't it?" Yes, sir. <coughs> Gamaliel, yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, so he come to know Christ and all the all the teachings that he had from the Old Testament. Do you not think they might have just? Clicked? Oh yeah. He's like, oh my goodness. Yeah. And that's the. It mm-hmm. made sense. Yeah, I think once he had that key, 
yeah, once he met Jesus and had that key, it all made sense. So he was ready to go out and preach and explain the gospel, yeah, to the people far and wide. So, yeah. And we also know, I mean, we know Paul also was, he, he knew a lot about the ancient world. He knew a lot about philosophy. Remember when he goes to Athens, he quotes from a, some of their own philosophers. So he was widely read in, in like the worldviews of the time. And you know, he, was the, he was the right man for the, um, the mission to go to the Gentiles. Like P- Peter couldn't have done that. Peter, you know, he had his limitations, and so those other apostles, but he was someone who understood the, like, the, the broader world around him, so. Okay, very good. Let's look at verse um, 18 there, <clears throat> as, as Leonard just pointed out. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. Okay, so he's a Christian. He's out doing evangelism and missions for three years before he even meets another apostle. Okay, so pointing out, I had been out there busily preaching Christ and preaching the gospel for several years before I ever even talked to another apostle. Okay, and remained with him 15 days, verse 19. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy and they glorified God in me. So that's an encouraging statement there. They they heard about this radical transformation and suddenly he's on our team now and they glorified God for it. They said, wow, you know, thank you Lord for giving us a a great man who's going to be a um, a great asset to the kingdom of God, but also for, you know, removing someone that hated us and probably was responsible for the deaths of a lot more people than just Stephen. You know, that's another, that's another verse of scripture. Every time I read Acts chapter, at the end of Acts chapter seven, as they um, are going to go stone Stephen, it says, and the men were laying their coats down at the feet of a young man named Saul. And it's like, and you know who this guy is, and you know what God's going to do with him, and you think, no one's ever so far gone that God cannot do a radical turnaround with them and, and change them. So just never, never give up on, on anybody. Okay, so there's the end of chapter 1. of Chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation... And communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Okay, so there's a lot here. Now, just keep your finger there in Galatians chapter 2. I want you to see in Acts chapter 15, look look back at Acts chapter 15. And why why are we turning to Acts 15? What's what's in Acts 15? I'm, I'm sorry? Yes, exactly. And they, they meet where to discuss it? In Jerusalem. It's the first, really, this is kind of like the first big council of, of Christian people meeting together to discuss that question. Okay? So the key verses here are verse 2 and verse 5, but I want to read just the first little block of text here. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so what are these guys saying? I mean, these are guys who said they believe in Jesus. Said, yeah, we, we're not, you know, we're not rejecting him. We're not among the, the, the Jewish opponents of Christianity. We believe in Jesus, but they're saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. So here is a major problem because they, they've added this other requirement in addition to believing in Christ. And so there's a big uh, controversy about it. So look at verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, 
describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, so this is, this is the first big fight that the church has, and it's over how a person's saved. And these are, as I said, these are Pharisees, actually Pharisees, that um, professed faith in Christ, but they said you also have to do this other stuff to be saved. Okay, so that's a, a very significant error on their part. Okay, so go back over to Galatians 2 now. <clears throat> now Paul recognizes here that there's a little bit more to this in that these people are really evil. These people came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, to try to bring people into bondage to this system of works righteousness. Okay? And it's real, real important to understand what motivates people like this. Um, keep your finger there in Galatians 2. Look at Acts chapter 20. Here's a, a passage that is real important. Uh, Paul exhorting the Ephesian elders here. Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse uh, 25. Before Paul heads off to Jerusalem, remember he, he gives this really stirring speech to the um, elders at, at um, Ephesus. And the reason, I mean, this is, a, this is an important block of, of text because it gives a lot of instructions about being an elder and the kinds of things that you have to watch out for. And especially verses 28, 29, 30, 31 are extremely important. But let's, look, let's back up and get context at verse 25. Paul speaking to those elders before he goes to Jerusalem. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things. And here's the the phrase, this is their motive, to draw away disciples after themselves. What motivates the bad guys that introduce new doctrine and false teaching? David Koresh. Yeah. It happens over and over again. Yeah. They want followers. They want followers. You want to draw people away after after them. Okay. That's always the motive behind the departures from the faith or people, they want to innovate. They want to, to distinguish themselves in some way by, by uh, coming up with a nuanced way of understanding this or that. But Paul says these are savage wolves. And he says they will arise from within the church. Okay, the most dangerous opponents to the faith have never been the people outside of the church. It's always from the inside. It's always the, the false doctrine that arises on the inside. And what very often happens with that is it's very hard to identify uh, false teachers or, or savage wolves. And very often it's hard to, uh, to deal with them because of friends who value their friendships with them more than they value the truth. And that's, that, that's what causes no end of... of problems is the people that value a friendship more than the truth so always remember that gospel's more important than me you may really you may really like me or dislike me um but the gospel's way more important than me or you and uh, as much as i love you all if you turn on the gospel i'm going to turn on you <laughs> okay because i love you because i would want you to believe the true gospel but if you become someone who's going to going to deny the gospel um, you will have at least one enemy, I know for sure. Okay. All right, look back at um, Galatians 2, um, verse 6. Galatians 2, verse 6. And, and before you get into verse 6, though, look at verse 5. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. So how quickly did, they, did he deal with this, this uh, issue in the church there? Within an hour. Okay, it's like he dealt with it right then and there. It was, we're dealing with it now. Okay, so that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Okay, verse 6. But from those who seemed 
to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. So whoever these teachers were, they must have been like, you know, uh, tall, dark, and handsome, charismatic, witty, good speakers, or something. They, they, they had a, you know, they came across as being somebody. And what does Paul say about them? <laughs> Whatever they are, I care less. I don't care. I don't care who they are. It makes no, I mean, he says that. It makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. In other words, no matter who they are or how articulate they might be or, or whatever, they're always under the authority of Scripture and always um, need to be willing to be corrected by the truth. Okay? Look at verse um, 7. But on the contrary, <clears throat> when they saw that the gospel for the, the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So I think the, I think the main point of what he's saying here is that I didn't learn the gospel that I preached from the other apostles, but when I did meet them, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. They endorsed my apostleship, and we're, we're all in agreement together. And it's important that he says that, because what's he about to get into in the next verse? <coughs> Say what? Well, who did he have to correct here? Peter. Peter. To his face. In front of everybody. Okay, so this is pretty awkward, but look at verse 11 there. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, that's the guys from Jerusalem there, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So what, what did Paul, Paul knew that Peter understood what? It's Christ alone. You don't need to obey, you don't need to be circumcised, and also, what else do we not need to worry about? As the, what, they, what did they not need to worry about as Jews? The separation laws, it's okay to hang out with Gentiles, and you can have a BLT sandwich, right? What was that? You can eat whatever you want, okay? Yeah, that's one of the, the huge blessings about, you know, um, being a, a Christian. You can, you can have shellfish and bacon, cheeseburgers. We have bacon cheeseburgers at, at, at my house tonight. Okay. Yes, sir. This conversation between Peter and Paul, was that after Peter's vision in Acts 10 or before? I think it was after it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Peter, Peter. Well, uh, we, we know... Yeah, we, we know he did understand this because he, he had already been eating with Gentiles. Remember that? He, he'd already done this. So he, he had gotten over his, his debate with Jesus in Acts 11 about, about, you know, I've never eaten anything unclean. And, of course, not only is he removing the dietary restrictions, he was also trying to teach Peter what? Gentiles, Gentiles are going to be believers now. Of course, what happens right after that? Who does he meet? Cornelius. The whole, you know, Cornelius is a Roman centurion and, and the spirit falls on them and um, they speak in tongues and you see that the household is baptized and all all that stuff so peter through visions and through seeing gentiles saved he knows better but when these guys came from james these like these high lofty pharisaic types all of a sudden he's oh yeah we never eat with with them they they, they sit over there we sit over here Okay, and Paul sees that, and Paul is, gets very upset about it. Because what does he see that that's as a denial of what Jim just said? It's a denial that it's Christ alone. You're adding a requirement. So look at um, verse 13. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. What, what does that show you if you're a leader about sinning? <laughs> that's right. And there's actually, a, I think it's question 151 in the larger catechism. What are the aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? And if someone is, is older and in a position of authority and they're more likely to be imitated when they sin, it's more serious than if someone younger who's not a leader sins. 
So you see, Paul is, is pointing that out here, that him doing that caused other Jews that did know better to follow his bad example. You see that? It's very serious. I mean, if you are someone that, you know, the eyes of people are looking up to you, you've got to handle things correctly, and you, you need to, to do things right. And you've got to make sure that um, you understand that people are going to follow your example. And so Paul saw not only was he being a hypocrite, he was leading other people astray. And look at verse 13 again. See it? The rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And what do we know about Barnabas? Who's, who is he? He's a pretty important person, isn't he? He's one of the traveling companions on some of these missionary journeys. You know, he's, he's the one who really kind of took Paul by the hand and introduced him to the other apostles. And he was, you know, encouraged them to, you know, he's not going to kill you, I promise. And, you know, help, help that. But even he, Barnabas, this great man of God, was led astray by Peter, who was one of the original apostles. And, I mean, if we had one of the original apostles here, wouldn't we be inclined to just go along with what he's doing? We would. We would. And so Paul is um, chiding you know, him for that, too. So verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? And then, and then Peter said, well, you didn't follow Matthew 18. <laughs> why, why is that not relevant here? Because it was a public act. That's right. Publicly. Public yeah, that's right. Someone needs to make t-shirts and distribute them at General Assembly meetings. <laughs> Publicly spoken heresy is not relevant to Matthew 18 on the front and the back of shirts. Okay? What is Matthew 18 addressing? Interpersonal sin. Okay? A teacher, an apostle stands up and leads lots of people astray. That's a public sin. He should be addressed publicly. Okay? So that's why Paul, in front of everybody there, I mean, he says to Peter, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles, let me translate that for you. I've seen you eat BLT sandwiches with them before. Bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches. If you do that, why are you compelling Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, he's saying, Peter, I know you know better. And what you're doing is not straightforward about the gospel. You're destroying the gospel by this behavior. Okay, and then verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus, or excuse me, by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Okay, what does he mean by works of the law? Ceremonial stuff. Anything else? Moral law. Hmm. Hmm. Exactly. Yes. So it's it's all those things, and it includes anything else you can come up with. So always remember that works of law refers to anything. Uh, the way the Westminster Standards describe it. Anything wrought in us by the Spirit or done by us. Okay, so um, I've described it like this before when I took evangelism explosion training. This illustration was used. Okay, like think of it like this. This chair, this is works. Anything I do. Before I became a Christian, I am relying upon this. Okay, that is Christ. In order to rely on Christ, what do I have to get up off of? Yeah. Can I sit on both chairs? You can't. So a Christian is someone who, it's not just that they believe that Christ can save them. It's that they're resting on him. They're relying on him. And therefore, to, to rest and rely on him means you're not resting and relying on anything else. 
Okay? And that's really the whole message of Galatians. To believe in Jesus Christ means you don't believe in works. You're not relying on anything you do. Okay? And Paul's point is if you try to mix the two things, then Christ is of no benefit to you. You're a debtor to keep the whole law, and you have to do that all by yourself. It's either Christ alone or you're not saved. It's either you're going to rely upon the finished work of Jesus to get you into heaven, or you get to keep the law all by yourself and he's not in the equation. I really believe the Galatian heresy, Jesus plus, that is what stacks the line of people who on the last day are going to do what? Lord, Lord. I, I, I really believed in you. And then what else are they pointing out? And did, yeah, didn't we do this? And we did this? And we did this? What does Jesus say to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. It's either Christ alone or you're lost. And the moment you add anything to faith or anything alongside of faith, anything to Christ, anything alongside of Christ, by doing that, you are demonstrating you do not understand Christianity, you don't understand the gospel, you're not a Christian, and you're not justified before God. You know, verse 16, I've wondered before reading this verse, how many ways can he say it in one verse? Let's see. Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That's three times in one verse he says that. Think of the other expressions that Paul uses, or Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. So he uses the expression, not by works. In Romans three twenty eight. he uses the expression, apart from works. He uses the expression, apart from works of law. He uses the expression, apart from law. He uses participles in Romans 4, to the one not working, but believing, his faith is accounted for righteousness. I've sat down at my desk before and have wondered, I don't think there's any other possible ways you can say it. Like literally in Greek or English, how else can you do this? And yet what is the folly of every form of neo-legalism and, and false teaching out there? They find a way to get works somehow back into the equation. But you can't let people do that. To believe in Jesus means you're not sitting on this chair anymore. That means you have gotten up from this chair and are sitting on this one. And um, what do people always accuse you of when you get the gospel right? Um, no, antinomianism. What is antinomianism? You just you just sin all you want. You can do what you want. Did you know somebody this week left a comment on one of my videos and said, "You're you really are an antinomian." <laughs> I said, "You just made my day." I said, "Because you just made the same accusation against me that all of Paul's enemies made against him." And I said to him, because this guy does not understand the gospel, I said, I promise you one thing. No one will ever accuse you of being an Antonian. No one will ever hear your message and think, oh, you're just saying we can sin so the grace may abound, because you don't preach a true gospel. If you preach the truth, people are going to object to it that way. And what's the answer to that? When people say, you're, you're saying you can just do whatever you want and go to heaven. You can just sin all you want. What's our answer to that? Certainly not. Certainly not. May it never be. What, what was it? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's right. And then what's, what's his, uh, what else does he say there? What, what is that whole chapter about, Romans 6? You're a new creature. That's right. You're radically changed now. You are not a slave of sin any longer. Think of Romans 6.18, such a great verse. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And People think, okay, cool, so I can be sinlessly perfect. And then what is Romans 7 about? No, you can't. Because <laughs> what does everybody, what does Paul say about himself? I do what I hate. That's right. The very things I hate, I do. And he, he's so frustrated by the end of it, he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Not that I was or used to be, oh, wretched man that I am. And what's the, the, the glorious Gospel announcement after that struggle, Romans 8, 1, what does it say? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No charge of wrongdoing can be brought in. No matter how much that struggle consumes us, and no matter how many times we fail, no matter how many times we face plant and, and stumble, 
uh, the condemnation of God has been satisfied by the death of Christ. Okay? Isn't it amazing how easily we just kind of drift away from that? And like, we start thinking like legalists and we start thinking, well, God, maybe this happened because I'm, I did this. And we start, think, we start thinking like a mechanical view of suffering. Like every little thing that happens to me is because I did this or that. Okay, that's why we have to go back to the gospel again and again and again and, and um, be reminded of, of what he did and that it's all of him. All right, so there's verse 16. Verse 17, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? So it's kind of the same objection, isn't it? Okay, so, since while seeking to be justified by, by faith, it's shown that we're sinners. Well, is Christ ministering sin then? Is he approving of sin? And his answer there is certainly not. And then verse 18 is, a, is an important verse. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. I think what he's saying there is if I rebuild the edifice of law keeping to make you right with God, I'm just making myself a transgressor by doing that. Okay? And verse 19, or excuse, yeah, verse 19. Uh, for I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. And the great uh, Princeton theologian Charles Hodge um, has a really wonderful section in his systematic theology on the law. And there's a, he has a, a really great statement the way he puts it. He says, the law was not, was not given by God to justify us. It was not given to save us. It was not given uh, to give us comfort. The law of God was sent to kill us all. Because it, what does it do? It slays us. How? How does the law of God do that? That's right. And if we die having transgressed that law, what happens to us? You're damned, lost. You're, you're under the just, righteous condemnation of God. And so Hodge makes the point, the law cannot help us be right with God in any way, shape, or form. That's why Paul says, through the law, I died. The law killed me. Once I understood it and understood the holiness of God and understood who I really was, the law slayed me and showed me that my only hope was to trust in the finished work of, of Christ to save me. Okay, and then you have that, um, that wonderful, wonderful verse. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that a great verse? What does he mean by that? I have been crucified with Christ. I, I was crucified with Christ. What does he mean? Old yeah, exactly. Just thinking of that in Ephesians 4, put off the old, put on the new. The, the old man, think of Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Paul says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That's also why it's impossible to be unchanged by the, the converting work of God in your life. That's why we can't be antinomians. We can't be people that don't care about righteousness because the old version of yourself died. Isn't that such a, I love that image. You, you think about if you, if you do remember your life before you were a Christian, you, you think, yeah, that's great. I'm glad that that person is dead and died with Christ. And I don't even know who that is now. And I don't even recognize him anymore. And good riddance and goodbye. Um, and anytime he tries to rear his head again and tries to gain the ascendancy, it's like we're going to war now. I'm going to fight against this now. Okay? But we did die with Christ. We were crucified with Christ. And it's no longer us who live. Now that we're owned by God and, and adopted into his family, it's Christ who lives in us. And the life we live... In the flesh, the little bit of time we've got before we die, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, I have here uh, a reference in my, in my Bible to the canons of Dort because that verse teaches limited atonement. Can the sinner in hell say, the Lord Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me? Of course not. Of course not. But he says that, who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that wonderful? Election is a personal thing. God loved me as an individual by name from all eternity. And Jesus, when he came into the world, came specifically to come get me and gave himself for me and loved me. 
So verse 21, great summary of the whole book so far. Verse 21 is iconic. Like seriously, this verse is cited constantly in the Westminster Standards. It's cited constantly in good systematic theology textbooks. You'll see why here. Look at verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God. Do some of your translations say nullify? I do not nullify. Yeah, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. And he's saying, okay, Peter, oh, I mean, you can almost see poor Peter like, all I did was not eat with Gentiles, man. You're like blowing a gasket. But, but it was not consistent with the true gospel. And it really was communicating the idea, you've got to obey these dietary laws if you want to be one of us. And Paul says, no, we are right with God by faith alone. And if we think that our righteousness or works is what makes us right with God, then you're saying that in effect, Christ died for nothing. Then. He died to no purpose. He died in vain. Okay, so... Listen, the moment that we add anything to faith in Christ as the means of our justification, we have nullified the grace of God. Because you ever had oil and water in a mason jar or whatever, and you shake it up as hard as you can, what do they immediately do? They separate back out. That's what faith, faith in Christ and works are. They're oil and water. The reason we're justified by faith alone with no reference to us, our works, our sanctification is so that we can say that we're saved by grace. It's by anything in addition to faith, anything alongside of faith, it's not grace anymore. It's not grace then. Look over at Romans, turn to the left there, look at Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, 14 through 16. Romans 4, 14 to 16. Romans 4, 14 to 16. And we'll, um, we'll stop here. Paul says here, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. What does he mean by those who are of the law? If those who are of the law are heirs, what does that mean? Yeah. People who think that they're going to be an heir of eternal life by keeping the law. And he says, if they're actually going to heaven, what's the result? Faith is made void and the promise of no effect. Verse 15, why? Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. And then verse 16 is the glorious grand conclusion. Listen to it. Therefore, it is of faith or by faith so that it would be according to grace. You hear that? Why are we justified by faith and with no reference of any kind to our works, to our lives, our holiness, our transformation? Because if there was a reference to our law-keeping, holiness, transformation, or anything, it wouldn't be grace then. Okay, you can't add works to grace and it still be grace. Faith in Christ alone is not working. It's not obeying. It's simply resting upon a finished work. Therefore, it is by faith, so that it would be according to grace. Look at the rest of verse 16. So that the promise might be sure. Does some of your translations say guaranteed? It would be guaranteed to all the seed. So think about this. If uh, getting into heaven depended in some little tiny part on my works, would it ever be sure? Would it ever be guaranteed? Could I ever really know for sure? No. And that's why in Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholic religion, assurance... A salvation is a sin. Do you know that? Yeah. It's called the sin of presumption. It is a sin. <clears throat> yeah. But it makes sense, though, if you believe that ultimately in the final analysis, your works are what God evaluates to let you into heaven. Yeah, it would be, it would be pretty arrogant to think you're going to heaven, wouldn't it? But it's a sin to have assurance in Romanism. You can't. You can't unless you have a direct revelation. But okay, let me, we'll, we'll really finish now. Okay. <laughs> James, James what? Well, that was the thing with me. I never, I was like, well, what do I do to lose my salvation if it's not clear? Yeah. I had, my pastor in college thought you could lose your salvation. It, all, it's, it almost just wrecked me. And, I, and I, I would, those conversations would always end the same way. I would always say, if that's true, 
Not only did I lose it, I never had it. And I also don't understand how you can think you're saved. Like, how do you think you've not done whatever it is you got to do to lose it? But James White debated a, a Roman Catholic priest, Mitchell Pacwa, many years ago. And someone in the audience asked the question, I want to know, is it possible for anyone to really know they, they're going to go to heaven when they die? And in the Roman Catholic Church, the only way you can know for sure is if you have a direct revelation from God. Like he dispatches an angel or some, something, or God himself tells you, you've done enough good works to be saved. So the, the Catholic guy goes first. The priest says, if you have a direct revelation from God, then you can, then you can believe that. But you can also have what he called moral certitude. And this is, this is really chilling. He said, based on what you understand of yourself, you're doing the best you can. You know the grace of God's at work in your life and you have a certain sense of peace about it. Then you can, you can have a, a basic sense of moral certitude. And White says, uh, Father Pacwa just said, if, we, if you have a direct revelation from God, then you can know you're going to heaven. He said, I do. It's called the Bible. <laughs> Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There, God just told me. <laughs> and that's exactly it. You either believe those promises or you don't. And that's what the whole Christian life is, trusting those promises and believing in the all-sufficiency of the work of Christ. So, goodness, I've been talking for 56 minutes. <clears throat> wow, it doesn't feel like 56 minutes. Any thoughts or comments? Or Isn't it glorious stuff? The book of Galatians is a treasure trove. L- Luther called it by his wife's name. He called it his Katarina von Bora. Yes, sir. <laughs> The, the, reason, the reason that Galatians has no effect on them is because they don't believe in Sola Scriptura. Once, once you abandon Sola Scriptura, the Bible will have no effect. It's just, it's just like the, uh, remember, let, let me ask you this question. Is it obvious to you that the Korban rule, the idea that whatever I was going to use to take care of my parents, I'm just going to do a one-time gift to the temple and then I can ignore my parents. Is it obvious to you that violates the fifth commandment? It is, it is to everyone I've ever talked to about it. But it had no effect on the Pharisees when Jesus pointed that out. Why? They didn't believe in Sola Scriptura either. They, they believed in extra-biblical rabbinical traditions that were passed on outside of Scripture. And I'm telling you, as soon as you abandon Sola Scriptura and you have some other authority, whatever that other authority is, says is going to turn this book black. You won't even care what the Bible says. So. I was raised in a very legalistic Pentecostal tradition. Mm-hmm. Never heard Galatians. Never even heard it. Down really? Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. They have no right to do that. You cannot bind someone's conscience to something that's not in Scripture. You can't do that. <laughs> so what, what would that make me? <laughs> but if you have no hair at all. They're really hung up on the hair, though. Really? I always tell people, I just read so many books that it pushed all my hair out of my brain. <laughs> we had some uh, Pentecostal friends in Africa uh, that uh, came to our dad and uh, brought him passages in Galatians mm. and asked how he could get around, he asked how they're supposed to get around um, those passages to mm. fit their theology. Wow. Uh, how to get around? <laughs> <laughs> Go talk to the liberal over there. There's a reason that historically the Christian church has called Galatians the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Like, you understand Christian liberty, you got to get Galatians. You can't bind people's conscience to anything that's not scriptural. And it's it's very serious to do that or to allow that kind of thing to to go on in your church or whatever. So so we we can actually say hi to each other at the liquor store. That's right. Just not two at a time. Yeah. I remember, you know, silly things that they get into. Like when I was a kid, the man wore a red necktie or a red shirt. Really, really. Have you ever noticed, Anthony, that the, the laws that man comes up with are a lot easier than God's? Like this, love your wife as Jesus loved the church. That's pretty hard. I, I can do the don't, you know, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. I, that's easy. Stay away from pool halls, R-rated movies. I, I, I got that. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. Mm, that's a lot harder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when people invent laws, they're always laws that they can actually keep. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Let's, uh, we'll stop there. And um, uh, thank you all for your uh, comments. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this time to be together. It's, it's always a joy um, to read the scriptures with my Christian brothers and sisters and to rejoice in the, the glorious freeness of your, your gospel. And uh, we just thank you so much for uh, the all-sufficiency of the work of Christ and that we receive and appropriate that work by simply trusting and relying upon the Lord Jesus and no longer relying upon ourselves. And, and yes, we, we desire holiness and we, we desire to live a godly life and we, we want to please you and keep your commandments but we know that even the progress that we make still falls short of your glory. And so our, our salvation is always uh, resting upon um, only upon the finished work of Christ because righteousness doesn't come through the law. And, and if, it, if it could have, then Christ died for nothing. He died in vain. So it would help us to rejoice in, in the freeness of your gospel and to rejoice that we have the great privilege of being your adopted children. And we pray that you would shine your light through us to others around us. And I pray if there's any here... Uh, that don't know the Lord Jesus yet, that you would make them born again and help them to see, uh, just as you did the uh, Saul of Tarsus before he was the Apostle Paul. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.